Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Invasion of the Podcasters. Uh, this is now episode 10. Uh, you have, first of all, myself, Graham. Hello. Um, along with me, we also have Simon. Hello, guys. Simon here. I am your guy who tends to look at some of the more obscure streaming services. At the moment, I have subscriptions to Mubi and Shudder, and I'll be looking at both of those today. And as well as Simon, we've also got Scott. Scott here. I'm taking care primarily of Amazon and Netflix, the the more common uh, streaming services. And you've got myself, Graham, where I look after what's on TV and free to air. Um, but we always start off each week with a bit of uh, update on what's happened in the news. And the big thing that's come out in the past few days has been uh, the news that Mulan is not going to be getting a full cinema release across for Canada and US audiences, but it's going to be going to... Um, uh, Disney Plus with an additional charge of uh, thirty dollars. So, what do we think of that, guys? Ooh, ooh, uh, that's a bit hefty, isn't it? <laughs> I think I think what people are pointing out is that um, that's so basically you can have you can have people over at your house, uh, of course, subject to COVID regulations. Uh, but you could have a Mulan party, but and, uh, and of course, if you if there's three people going to a cinema, let's say it's ten dollars each, uh, that'll be thirty dollars. Mm. So. Um, you could have four people over, and then you'd be you spending less in effect. So yeah, that's that's for your subscription, isn't it? So yeah, so plus can... on top of that. So basically, you're playing. It must be roughly uh, three times the amount of a monthly. Uh, Purely price. for that film, yeah. Yeah, to watch that once. Yeah, it's no, pretty... I think there's. I think there's talk, though, that they might mean that when you, for America at least, because they have announced what's happening across here in the UK, is that when you buy it, you own it. But then the worry is, is that going to be just as long as you have a Disney Plus subscription? If you end your Disney Plus subscription, do you mm. then lose it? Um, so, because I remember when Troll 2, the Trolls 2 came out, the world tour, that one was available on like not Troll Two, no, not Troll completely Two, completely different movie. Trolls Two, the yeah, the slightly more garishly coloured musical one. Um, <laughs> when that came out, that was available on like Sky for where you had that for forty eight hours, so you could watch it as much mm-hmm. as you wanted within forty eight hours. I think what they're proposing with Mulan is that you get a digital download, but then that digital download is is that going to be indefinitely? Can you store it somewhere else, or is it just while you have a Disney Plus subscription? And then there's going to find out what is going to happen for the wider market across here in the UK, Europe, and the rest of the world as mm-hmm. well. Well, of course, the Chinese audience is going to be the big one with this one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much geared towards them. Um, I was actually talking to a Chinese friend of mine. She said that the lead star of Mulan is one of their all-time favourites, so very bankable star in that lead role so they're gonna want to get bums and seats yeah it'll be interesting to see what how disney plus is doing in other territories um because mm-hmm. are many people gonna sign up to it purely to then also pay additionally to see mulan but it's in countries where cinemas are um open um it's only because of the difficulty that they seem to have had in the u.s and canada for having mm-hmm. Uh, big chains all nationally open so in other areas where there seems to be a bit more progression with cinemas um, that's why they're looking to roll it out as intended but we'll wait and see what happens if there's any changes to it on Disney Plus over here. Mm-hmm. 
Of course, though, I think Bill and Ted's... Uh, uh, no, sorry, Bill and Ted Face the Music has done the honourable thing and sort of moved out of the way <laughs> of that release date because they were due to come out on the same day because when Mulan said we're coming out September 4th, Bill and Ted were like, oh, my God, we're going to get crushed. So uh, I think... Haven't they moved to, like, a week a earlier week earlier, now? yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's the thing, though. Even, even though it's just going to be, like on demand so you can watch it from home they're still thinking about well are people going to watch Mulan and Bill and Ted on the same week so they're, they're scheduling things as if it was a cinema release to like make sure that which Bill I and think Ted... is wise yeah it, I mean it's it's oh, as once again it's that word unprecedented so it's mm-hmm. uh, very much just testing the water so we'll see how I, I want, I'd, I'd be interested to see what the sort of box office if the, they do can't even call it that uh, comes in when they release any sort of figures yeah, I mean, we were talking about Netflix disclosing viewership finally uh, the other week. Do we know Disney Plus? Are they saying what's most popular? What's... I haven't looked into it, to be honest. No, I've, I've, it's yeah. nothing that it's <laughs> sort either. of stuck out that I'm sure that we would have genuinely picked up on if there'd been a big announcement. But they've only yeah. been going for so many months now. It probably won't be until they get up to a year that they'll release something. But who knows? We'll keep, an eye, keep our eyes and ears peeled. They'll probably only release the figures when they're substantial enough to... To be respectable, I think. Yeah. And yeah. part of what's going on. Exactly. It's probably just going to be the Mandalorian. Let's be honest. Well, let's see if uh, Mulan's successful. I'm sure they'll be um, mm. sort of making a point of uh, mentioning how popular that's been if it does take off on that format. Um, but anyhow, we so say well. That's the news for this week. We'll keep uh, abreast to see if there's anything that comes up for the next episode. Um, but uh, it's uh, over to you, Simon. Where you I understand we've had some correspondence based on our um, physical media episode last week. We have two bits. One of them is actually recording as well. So we have we have had our first time first time caller, which is lovely. Long time listener. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, he's a friend, so. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, last week I was talking about a few of my editions, and then I mentioned that I had a sort of imitation VHS slash Blu-ray of 2018's phantasmagorical metal horror Mandy with Nicolas Cage. Uh, and I fully acknowledged, I put my hands up and I said, right, this is not the best edition of the film. I know somebody who does have the best edition of the film. Leo, will you get in touch? And he did. He's so answered the call. This is what Leo said. He has answered the call. The Leo signal. <laughs> right, so here we go. Hello there, podcasters. I really enjoyed the episode on physical media in which Simon called me out as having the German Ultimate Edition of Mandy, so I thought I'd make a little recording going through the uh, the box set itself and just what it entails. Uh, and I'll send some pictures through as well for the old social medias if anyone's interested. So starting on the back, we've got like a 12-inch vinyl record-style box here. Um, it looks more like a limited edition um, vinyl box set than anything else. I actually keep it with my vinyls on the top shelf of my uh, record shelf because it just kind of fits better with those than it does with the uh, DVD cases and whatnot. So on the back, we've got uh, an image of the Beast, which is the axe that Nicolas Cage's character forges to fight off the spirits of evil that he uh, fends off in this movie. 
there's blood dripping down from the axe into the Mandy logo, which is in the uh, the death metal style logo, like a death metal band name. And then on the front side of the box, we have the larger version of that death metal Mandy logo. Uh, it's a really nice look, all blood red on black background. So we open it up like a gatefold record. Uh, we've got four discs on the right hand side. One of those discs is a Blu-ray copy of the film, one is a DVD copy. Um, then we have the Blu-ray of all of the extras on this, uh, and then we also have a copy of the soundtrack on CD. Uh, then in a little holder on the left side, we've got, first of all, possibly the best thing about this edition. Uh, it's a 10-inch vinyl record of Jeremiah Sand, uh, the villain of the movie, and his song Amulet of the Weeping Maze, which can be heard in the film. And it also has a B-side called My Journey, which is not featured in the film. Um, if anyone's desperate to hear that without buying this, I believe it is on YouTube. It also mentions on the front and back that this is uh, an imprint of Sandstorm Records, which I can only assume is his own record label, which he has uh, created just to produce his own music. And on the back it also has kind of his self-congratulatory manifesto um, penned out next to all the track titles and stuff. And then behind that, we've got some 12-inch posters. Um, again, very much all on the theme of vinyl here. Uh, so we have four of these 12-inch posters, and they're essentially character posters. Two of them are of Nicolas Cage, one is of Andrea Riseborough's Mandy, uh, and then one of them is one of the Demon Hellbikers, uh, which are called the Black Skulls, I believe. And I think this one is Scabs, the one with lots of nails sticking out of them. Uh, and then behind those posters, we have another poster, which is a fold-out of the actual movie poster itself. Uh, and then behind that, we have the uh, book, which goes into a lot of the behind-the-scenes details and design details and uh, things like that. Um, I couldn't tell you the actual contents of this book because it's all in German. As I mentioned, it's a German uh, special edition, and I do not speak German. So unfortunately, I haven't actually read any of this book. Um, it's not particularly long, and I do have a friend who's a German fluent speaker, so I've promised that one day I will buy him a pint uh, and he can read it all out to me. Um, and then across the middle, once you've taken all that out, there's a really nice image of Nicolas Cage getting ready for battle with his Umi chainsaw, absolutely dripping red with blood. Um, so yeah, that's the edition, guys. Uh, really enjoying the podcast. Keep up the good work. Um, yeah, speak to you soon. Bye. Ah, oh, fantastic. Yeah, lovely. Thank you very much for that, Leo. Yeah, I mean that's that's the type of listener correspondence that we love i mean it's it's very enthusiastic and passionate good stuff um but yeah that's that's one hell of an addition uh it's definitely the sort of thing that panis cosmatos would be proud of i remember reading something about his, his films when i was writing uh, an essay on mandy for a site called alternate takes uh and, and panis cosmatos said that his films are like physical objects i'm just gonna look at the quote here um he said I think of all of my films as collector's items or pop culture art artefacts. My guiding principle is not that this is a story I want to tell. It's this is an object and what are its themes and aesthetics and how do I merge them into something like a sculpture? In the case of Mandy, it's like an album or a song. Uh, and out the other end here, you know, here we have it. It's his film as both an album, a book and a Blu-ray to be positioned on the top of uh, somebody's shelf. So... What a dream for him, eh? <laughs> Perfect. Art imitating life, or the other way around. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, we've also had another little bit of uh, physical media correspondence from uh, another friend of the podcast, Jack, uh, who, well, he was responding to 
uh, me talking about the Scarlet Box, the 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 Hellraiser, Hellraiser Scarlet yeah. Box that I was talking about. Yeah. Uh, and he has his own Hellraiser box set. It is an Anchor Bay one, but it is actually signed by Doug Bradley, who plays Pinhead, or the lead Cenobite, as I said. Um, and he he sort of included a little bit of an embarrassing anecdote with this, so this is what he sent in. He said, uh, I met Doug Bradley at a horror con, and I got him to sign my box set. It was back in my younger days, so I was very starstruck being a big horror fanatic. I asked a question, which was literally uh, just something I was curious to know. But I think he took offence. Uh, I asked him why the other Cenobites weren't in the third movie. But I think he thought I was implying that I was either disappointed it was just him or perhaps he couldn't carry the movie on his own. <laughs> either way, he signed my box set with a very disgruntled look on his face. <laughs> I mean, look, Jack, I mean, to be honest, Doug Bradley always looks very disgruntled outside of his pinhead makeup anyway. Uh, so I wouldn't I wouldn't worry too much about it. Uh but yeah, I've I have got to echo your sentiments there because I did kind of miss the original Cenobites of the third movie. Uh, although I have got a lot of love for CD the DJ. Now, uh, have you seen Hellraiser three? I half watched it when it was on the horror channel the other week. They were showing all three of them one week after week after week, and I really I watched and focused intently on the first one. The second uh-huh. one I was like, nah, about, and then the third one I was just kind of passingly just had it on the background <laughs> pretty much, so diminishing returns if ever there was. Yeah, that's true enough, but I tell you what, that thing has a hell of a third act because uh, basically Pinhead goes into a nightclub uh, and he massacres everybody, but he sort of chooses certain people within the nightclub to turn into a sort of acolyte, you know, like a Cenobite, and he basically turns the DJ into a Cenobite. And he's listed in the credits as CD the DJ, who, uh, well, well, his power is basically shooting CDs at people, like these razor razor sharp CDs. So there you go, a true physical media fan, if if there ever was one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, why not? But yes, uh, thank you for that, Jack. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, if if you've got any sort of comments about what we're talking about, please do get in touch. Uh, so thank you. Absolutely, but uh, it's now over to yourself, Scott. Uh, you're just going to look over and run through your areas of like Amazon, Netflix, and what have you. Yeah, so um, I've been known to point out a, a lack of foreign films on on Netflix, and also a lack of older films as well, um, American, British, etc. Um, but the situation has improved recently in terms of foreign films. Of course, the most high-profile of these is uh, the Studio Ghibli films that have recently come on, uh, just in the last few months, of course. Um, A lesser-known niche is a presence of Asian action films. Now, I'm specifically referring to those starring the Indonesian actor and martial artist Iko Oase, best known for The Raid. Um, Which is currently streaming on Shudder. Thanks for that Simon, because it's not on Netflix. There you go. <laughs> but it is somewhere. There we go, folks. However, The Raid 2, this, the exceptional sequel, is on Netflix. And mm-hmm. I reckon that's one of the best action films of this century. Um, me, me and Simon saw it in, in, a, in a screening with only six other people, I think. Yeah. Oh, six people. It was definitely quiet. I think it was six in total, in fact, and uh, yeah, that was a great uh, cinema experience. Uh, yeah, Just genuinely with, like with, electrifying. Yeah, without people on the phones, without popcorn, without kids <laughs> screaming. Not that there'd be any kids in that film, but 
been watching that <laughs> film, but uh, yeah, that was a good screen. Um, also present is is the night comes for us, which which is solid, um, not quite the rear two standard, but that, that is very very good. Um, and then this headshot, which which is fun, but it's not as refined as as the other two I've mentioned. Mm. The most recent offering though is Triple Threat, which was released last year. Plot-wise, it is, it is pretty simple. Um, the basic uh, concept is a billionaire's daughter speaks out against a crime syndicate, making herself the target of an elite assassination squad. What they don't foresee is the three mercenaries, including Iko Wace, of course, who come to her aid. Iko Wace always being the hero in the films. Um, well, there was a bit of Except, a... hmm? except in the night comes for us, where he plays a kind of scumbaggy villain, right? Oh yeah, yes. <laughs> Simon is seen that one more recently than me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, in this in this one though, he's playing a sort of um, fistful of dollars thing, where he's he seems to be playing two sides against each other in a way. Uh, but there's more, there's arguably more, arguably more to it than that. However, mm. uh, the plot for this is paper thin, uh, and the dialogue is is awful on occasion. Uh, some of the lines <laughs> make you wince, really. Uh, just These guys are martial artists. Uh, they're not really um, thespians. Not like, uh, <laughs> not like the, next, the second coming of Laurence Olivier or anything. Um, however, as I've sort of alluded to there, the fight scenes here are ex- exceptionally well choreographed. Um, this, as I said, is a testament to the casting of professional martial artists. Um, and to the action background of the director, Jesse V. Johnson. Now, he's no uh, Andrei Tarkovsky, I'm afraid, Simon. Uh, but uh, he does I know stunts. I never that he was. <laughs> As I say, he does... Tarkovsky did the ultimate stunt, and he filmed in a radioactive uh, chemical plant, and he died. So that's... Uh, yeah, that's commitment to that's the That's how risky he was. Uh, Jesse V. Johnson does have, a, does have a strong background in the stunt arena. He was a stuntman on Mission Impossible 3, Starship Troopers, fantastic film from Paul Verhoeven, oh. of course. Yeah. Um, he was also a stunt coordinator on Robert Zemeckis' Beowulf, which, which, I, haven't, which I haven't seen, but uh, I'm not sure. But I have some uh, inclined to think it's not as good as Starship Troopers. That, yeah, probably right there, yeah, but yeah, okay. it's underrated, I'm telling underrated. you. Underrated? Well, maybe we'll check that one out. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend Triple Threat per se uh, to 20 fans of uh, of drama, uh, but it is worth more than worth checking out. You get your value as an action genre fan. So if you're in your action, it's certainly something worth checking out, and um, if you like your MMA or, or whatever, you, you'll appreciate the, the quality of these these fight scenes. Because they are superb, uh, it's it's a shame that the dialogue doesn't uh, doesn't support the excellence of the action. Is it in English though that film? Um, it's it's bits and pieces. It, it is primarily because oh, right. uh, the, act, right. the actors are are English or American, um, and equal ways most mm-hmm. of his lines are in English as well. So it's pr- okay. primarily in English, and of course there are subtitles when when it's. Uh, Indonesian. Yeah. I think it's in, I think it's in Indonesia. It's set. In fact, no. It's... Do you think we're a little? Mm? Sorry, I was just going to say. Do you think we're a little bit more forgiving of subtitled movies if the dialogue's bad because we can't actually understand what they're saying, but we can just read it? Maybe. I think maybe, but uh... yeah, possibly a bit of. But it's it. 
I don't know. I think a lot of these times with their dubbing, it just sits out. It just stands totally separately. It just brings you out the experience. I'd rather have the subtitles yeah. and have to read and take my eye away from what's happening on screen to be able to follow the script. But when there's these action sequences, they're not particularly having long, lengthy conversations at the same time. So. No. Yeah. <laughs> just, ah, yeah. ooh, but the plot, ah, as I say, is, uh, is paper thin in this one. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, by all means, watch uh, watch Go Oasis films on Netflix because they're, they're all worth a watch. Uh, there's also a show called We Were Assassins, like an action action TV show on there. I'm not sure what it's about. I've, I've just become aware of it today, but uh, sounds interesting. And, uh, it's certainly something that I'll be researching more. Uh, just quickly, uh, that was my main thing for today, uh, but there's The Farewell um, on Amazon, um, where Aquafina is a, is a young um, Ch- Chinese-American girl who goes back to, to China when her... Grandma is reported as ill, and basically in Chinese culture, they don't really they don't tell people they're, they're terminally ill. Uh, so it's just about the whole family being having a con- internal conflict about that sort of West Western culture versus Eastern culture. Uh, that's an excellent film to check out, and um, also on Netflix, Troll Hunter, which is the great Norwegian found footage horror. Uh, well, science fiction mystery. Monster horror, to a lot of genres in there. Um, like a horror leads, folk tale horror. Yeah, mm. sort of a f- Scandinavian folk tale as well. And this also, this actually leads us well into, into Simon's bit because I think he's got some things to say about found footage. Yeah, um, there's actually a really, really good uh, little found footage film that's just come onto Shudder uh, this week. In fact, sorry, I would just like to start this bit by saying that Shud has been responsible for two incredibly pleasant surprises uh, this week after the the betrayal of the moment where they reduced their selection uh, after expanding it so considerably in the middle of June. Uh, but I'd say, you know, through these two movies, they have somewhat redeemed themselves. So all is forgiven, all is forgiven. Um, first of all, of course, as Scott was saying, um, we've got the found footage film, uh, which is called Host. Um, but it's a it's a film of a very particular subgenre of the found footage movie. So is it a sub subgenre? Um, and it's only sort of emerged in the last six or seven years, and that's the desktop movie, uh, wherein all of the action on screen takes place on a laptop or a computer or an app. Basically, there's not many of these. I think there's only like a handful. I think the two most high profile works are Unfriended, which is actually a franchise now by uh, by Blumhouse, so it's one of their flagship series, uh, and also Searching, with uh, John Cho, which is I think it's on Netflix right now, um, and and it did a number a couple of years ago on the festival circuit before being released to some more critical acclaim. I haven't seen that yet, and I haven't seen Unfriended either. So I think here, well, here's a disclaimer for this review. I think that I might have loved Host so much because I hadn't seen anything like it before. Uh, but I can imagine the mechanics that the subgenre works with uh, at large, so I'm sure I'll enjoy them too off the back of this once once I get round to them. Uh, back to Host, though. Um, I was I was talking a couple of weeks ago about um, a term called lockdown cinema. So that's basically stuff that has been made in lockdown where filmmakers are basically being forced to find new ways of making new content um and host is probably the most substantial work that i've found in that category so far uh it is a british film it's also a feature debut to boot it's actually rob savage's first foray 
into feature filmmaking after about a decade's worth of shorts. Uh, the setup's quite a basic one. It's just about a bunch of uni friends who are looking to amuse themselves remotely in lockdown. But instead of doing uh, a pub quiz over a Zoom call or something like normal people, uh, they decide to do a seance instead. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Um, of course, things do relatively quickly. Um, but still, you know, this is a much more uh, patient film than your average jump scare horror. It does actually take a lot of care setting up its cast of characters who are instantly recognisable to anyone of this generation. It's actually one of the most realistic portraits of British youth I've seen in a very, very long time. Uh, and that's a really great foundation for the sort of non-stop pacey scares that come very later on. Um, it's only 56 minutes as well, so it, it does not outstay its welcome in the slightest. Uh, there's some really intriguing visual effects as well, where you think, hang on a minute, how did they do that in lockdown? No social distancing must have been involved in that. So it's a, it, it's a clever film, it makes you think. Um, of course, though, I mean, it wouldn't be exciting at all if it didn't engage with the technological aspect of, of the desktop film with, with any great interest. So, uh, you know, it, it does, thankfully. If you've ever been on a Zoom meeting, then you'll know that Zoom essentially guides your focus whenever somebody's speaking, so they sort of fill the screen. And that's a really nice way of sort of drawing your attention to sort of dead space or, you know, what's going to happen, what's not going to happen, etc. Um, and the anxiety of how long a Zoom call lasts if you don't own the uh, the paid version of it is actually becomes a really, really scary gag towards the end of the film. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say any more than that, but, you know, I really, really loved it. As it stands, I'm tentatively going to say that it was my favourite film of the year. I think this might be me being very, very enthusiastic because I was actually surprised by how much I enjoyed it. But, you know, one thing's for sure, it will be among the defining films of the year because something like this is as modern or contemporary as it gets. Uh, it's just really, really great stuff. Um, before I move on to talk about my next little Shudder film... Um, how do you guys feel about found footage horror? Uh, well, can I just say with that, with that being the best of the year so far, that there haven't been many films this year, so... No, there haven't. <laughs> sort of <laughs> put, put an asterisk but, next but to it. by default. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've still got plenty of the year left to go, though. Yeah, we do. Um, but no, I mean, Mulan, you never know. You never know. But yeah, in terms of um, found footage <laughs> films, um, I mean, Scott mentioned before Troll on Netflix. Um, you've the likes of... Troll Hunter, sorry, on Netflix. Um, also within uh, my field as well, the Blair Witch Project, that's available on uh, on iPlayer. Um, oh, really? I remember seeing that on the, like the week it came out. After all the sort of buzz, went to the cinema to see it, and it was an absolutely packed crowd. Um, I think mm. it was on like the opening weekend. After hearing all about it, and I think it was a really effective use of it. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm not for against it. There, the only trouble is any type of style or use of a particular technique which becomes popular it's there's going to be renditions and versions of it and uses of that style which aren't going to be successful so as long as it's mm. done well um so the likes of blair witch i thought cloverfield although not a brilliant film i thought the use of found footage worked quite well was um, um, cannibal holocaust like the first the originator of this genre yeah it's yes, it like a documentary yeah, right. um film that's mm -hmm. right yeah um that's actually a funny thing because I was actually just going to start off my next segment by saying, oh, of course, this 
this segment doesn't feature any found footage horror because it's about 80s horror but you are right scott uh cannibal holocaust beginning of the 80s effectively the first found footage film so um which kind of is a bit weird because basically what i'm about to talk about next basically talks about every single horror movie in the 1980s except cannibal holocaust but <laughs> then again i think it might be because uh, anyway sorry i'll just launch into this bit and then i'll sort of give context about why cannibal holocaust might not be in here um so yes anyway um i watched the film on shutter this week called in search of darkness a journey through iconic 80s horror so um it's a documentary of course its film's focus is on uh, the 1980s and it's primarily on american films in the 1980s and i know um cannibal holocaust does feature quite a lot of american actors but because it was directed by is it Ruggiero Diodato? I think it might be an Italian production. So I'd, anyway, doesn't really matter. Might might have been the case where they couldn't get anybody from Cannibal Holocaust to actually talk about it. So, uh, anywho, sorry, <laughs> that was the clumsiest uh, connecting tissue to that next segment, wasn't it? It works. It works. Okay, thanks. It'll thanks, hold. Bill. It'll hold. <laughs> get some gaffer tape on um, it, and we're all good. Um, but yeah, it was. I've just been googling it as we speak, and it was an Italian right. production. Uh, right. Okay. And uh, Ruggiero Diodato. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Okay. Cool. Uh, I mean, Cannibal Holocaust is is certainly a um, striking film. Let's say. Uh, I think it's actually part of the Shameless collection, which is on Amazon Prime at the minute. So if you are willing to delve into the beginnings of found footage horror then you may on uh, amazon prime so get back in touch with us for that uh, please please don't cry oh. <laughs> um yes anyway sorry in search of darkness uh, a journey through 80s horror uh is a documentary and it's a big one at that it runs for four hours and 23 minutes so i would completely recommend consuming this as a tv series like i did uh, this week uh, thankfully, it is very episodic and straightforward. It's it's basically cut up into twenty sections, ten of which focus on individual horror films for each year of the nineteen eighties, uh, and another ten sections which take a look at certain topics like nudity or heroes or villains, etc., etc. Uh, the format is incredibly simple. It's basically just an excuse to let a bunch of horror legends talk their way through their works and the works of their contemporaries it's a it's a pretty stacked selection of famous faces as well so we've got john carpenter joe dante uh, lloyd kaufman uh, greg nicotero doug bradley again um and a couple of the late greats like larry cohen and stuart gordon giving their two cents on on the matters um there's a real sense of discovery in this as well because you discover the enthusiasm of certain people that you wouldn't expect for example uh, alex winter of bill and ted fame uh, is, is probably the most intelligent thoughtful critic of anybody in the entire film believe it or not uh and and believe me you know there are a lot of critics in this i'd actually just love to see alex winter do a sort of movie drum style intro to a lot of different films because he does a hell of a good job selling each and every one of them uh the documentary at large doesn't go into a lot of depth on each film but its scope is so huge uh and it's and its energy is very very enthusiastic as well so it doesn't matter that certain films like manhunter or or the hitcher get completely neglected you know i enjoyed it a lot and it's it's definitely one of the most 
exclusive works on Shudder. I think this is the sort of first wide release that it's actually got. So if you do end up getting a subscription, make sure you watch this uh, little and large combination of Host and In Search of Darkness. Um, over on Mubi this week as well, I've seen a couple of things that I really enjoyed, um, particularly Christian Petzold's Transit, which is uh, essentially a melancholy World War II movie, apparently taking place in present day. It's uh, transplanted a story of a novel by uh, German author Anna Segers into modern-day Marseille, uh, and it's about a German dissident who's on the run from an occupying force in France who takes on the identity of a dead communist writer in order to flee from, from the war in Europe. Uh, I think you'd quite enjoy this one, Scott, actually, uh, because it, it's possible to draw a few comparisons between this and Casablanca, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. one of your favourites, I yeah, believe. <laughs> very much so. Uh, it, it takes place uh, on the edge of the war. It's about two lovers who are about to be ripped apart by circumstance. There's a bar that plays a very central <laughs> role uh, in the film. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's not really derivative of Casablanca at all, uh, at least not in terms of its its pace and it's like it's it's a generally very modern approach to filmmaking. Um, so that one's called Transit. It's currently in the movie library. So you know, have a dig around in there for that. Um, I also enjoyed uh, Werner Herzog's sort of full documentary uh, sci-fi parable called The Wild Blue Yonder which I actually mentioned a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, uh, but I only finally got to watch it this week. It is still in the movie library, so you can catch it along others in this mini-season, which also contains Wheel of Time, the Buddhism documentary, and the Christian Bale Vietnam War movie, Rescue Dawn. Uh, The Wild Blue Yonder, on the other hand, is about an alien who's played by uh, Brad Dourif with a very skeevy ponytail, uh, who's uh, uh, he's basically found a home on Earth, and he's narrating the efforts of a team of astronauts trying to find a home away from Earth. So it's basically Interstellar with the Werner Herzog treatment. Um, so you know, lots of shamanic music, uh, some fantastic nature photography, some questionable overall dialogue as well. I mean, bless Brad Riff, honestly, because he's just doing his best conspiracy theorist sort of crank character saying stuff like I could have told them man I I could have told them the things I've seen man you wouldn't believe your eyes man it's the wild blue yonder man so it's 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 a bit like a mixture between uh, David Lynch and <laughs> Dennis Hopper in in Apocalypse Now but you know I, I enjoyed this for what it was uh, it's it's, it's kind of like a cool experiment on trying to uh, fictionalized documentary footage so you know it's it's all good fun at the end of the day um i've also got a little bit of a coming soon segment which is a project that i'm trying to sort of get off the ground in the next week or so uh because coming up on movie um we've got a king who uh, double bill of movies and you might be asking king who <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway so was that a great banter <laughs> got him um anyway king who uh he's supposed to be a master of the uh wuxia uh martial arts genre so uh which which is sort of the thing that kill bill was referencing uh crouching tiger hidden dragon i guess could be qualified as a as a wuxia flick but it basically combines fluid combat with sort of ethereal beauty the first of king who's films uh that are on movie right now is dragon inn uh, and, and coming up uh, is another part of that double bill very soon is his most famous work, the epic A Touch of Zen. 
Uh, now, King Who is a filmmaker that I've really wanted to get into for a long time, but I've never really taken the plunge into his into his oeuvre. Uh, so if, if anyone has any thoughts about his films or is watching them on movie soon, get in touch with us and uh, let me know what you think. Cool, fantastic. Thank you very much. And then also now for over to myself, Graham, uh, I'm going to be just uh, highlighting some things that are across on free to wear. Um, to be honest, I've had a look through the schedules and the day that we're recording this, um, I'm probably not going to cover TV because there's a few gaps. I don't know if we're going to get the episode out in time for the weekend. So I've just focused on um, what's available on streaming. And I'm going to try and get it out by Saturday. Well, I might quickly mention then on Talking Pictures okay. TV Saturday afternoon, Foul Play. Oh, yeah, no, sorry. It's not going to get done by Saturday afternoon. There we go then. I won't mention it then. Um, I'll, mention <laughs> on this, I'll mention it on the uh, socials because I'll, be, on the socials, I'll be sitting on, watching then. it on, the, on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, so I'm going to be just focusing in on uh, what's on free to wear uh, this week. Um, so on iPlayer, uh, last weekend we had Apocalypse Now, the final cut, uh, which was shown. Um, so we highlighted that on our social media, um, and we just picked up upon the differences between the various cuts that were available. Um, so this mm-hmm. is a great opportunity to get to see the final cut. Um, I know that a lot of us will have all seen the original. I think when Redux came out, uh, that actually became, well, quite divisive, but it uh, it showed that quite a lot of people were taking interest to get it watched. First time it had been re-shown in cinemas and so forth. So I, I saw the Redux when it came out of the cinema release for the sake of seeing it, the big screen. Um, but then there's the, the final cut, which uh, trims off a bit more time off the fi- the redux. Uh, it is longer mm-hmm. than the theatrical cut, but well worth uh, checking out if you want to be a completist. But I remember you saying, Simon, though, if you haven't seen it before, the theatrical cut's the, the one to start with. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's so much more lean, you know? I mean, there's there's like no fat on it whatsoever. It is like a lengthy film, but it doesn't have any of the sort of pace-killing sequences in there, because of course in the um in the final cut you've still got the french plantation sequence which is where um basically they've lost a member of their crew and, and then they where go the whole and, audience and start them. falling asleep as well yes indeed <laughs> and then it's it it feels like it's shot by another cinematographer because all of a sudden it just becomes sort of very whimsical mm, very hazy and, it, and then and it sort of like looks vaseline on the lens yeah, yeah, and then it just looks like it's it's filmed on a set for some reason. But of course, the thing about Apocalypse Now is that it was all filmed on location, and it was all like this was for real. You know, they really killed a water buffalo. There was a real dead bodies hanging from the tree. You know, so it's like absolutely insane level of filmmaking. And and then the French plantation sequence. Ah, I don't know. It just feels false, and there's also like another sort of layer of context that the film doesn't need. But you know, it's it's apocalypse now. There's very little that you can do to mess it up, because what is in there is pretty much the greatest film in the world. Yeah. Um, well, Francis Ford Coppola, he's made three stabs at it, at it now, so. <laughs> and his first stab was the best. Indeed. Um, but then as well also on iPlayer um, just an interesting one to pick out on I've not seen it um, but I remember it being talked about when it was released as uh, Ibiza the silent movie uh, which is a production and a sort of joint venture between Julian Temple and uh, Norman Cook of Fatboy Slim fame providing the music. Um, it's a musical voyage, uh, it's described as, into the history of the Balearic Island. So as well as talking about the history of the 
dance scene in the music culture, it also goes back to the history of where it's placed in terms of a historical context of invaders, um, migrating people and so forth like that. So it sounds really interesting. It just sounds like an interesting piece of cinema. I've seen a trailer for it and it's just something I can imagine just sitting back to and uh, watching and enjoying. So I'll be catching that up for, it's available for 26 days on iPlayer and just mentioning as well with Apocalypse Now that's available for 25 days. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as iPlayer, and um, we've also got this week on all four because I believe it was shown. It was premiered on uh, Film Four last week, uh, which I didn't manage to catch, but I'll be certainly checking out on all four. Is 2018's Cold War, and that's available for the next 22 days. It's uh, the story, actually, a true story apparently of the director's parents. Um, based in 1950s Poland of uh, their story of falling in love but in the shadow of the Cold War and coming from different backgrounds and uh, everything that that brings Um, but uh, I've not seen it myself but I have heard great things and I know that uh, Mm -hmm. you've seen it Simon yes I have Um, yeah really really good it's it's a very peculiar film because it 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 starts off almost kind of like a sort of Eastern European art movie version of the X-Factor uh, and then it becomes this uh, it's a really touching, frustrating romance movie that's kind of an epic. It, it, it's not a long film at all. It's like under 90 minutes yeah, or something. Yeah, 84 minutes, I think, 86 minutes. 84 I think minutes. 80, 84, Friday. 86, I'm sure I saw. Just shows you the economy of like the storytelling as well, because like, eventually by the end of that film you feel like you've lived a whole life with these characters, you know? it's It's a really... Uh, touching film. I think I'm underrating it a little bit as well because I've 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 only seen it once and I've only seen the uh is it Pavel Pavlikovsky? Um Yeah, I believe so. I was uh, redacted his name because I was never going to pr- try pronouncing it. All right. <laughs> well, that was that was my attempt. I am sorry if I uh, mispronounced. Bravo. It. Um, <laughs> but uh, Ida is uh, as well. That's that's really worth checking out. It's about a nun who, um. She discovers something, and I can't remember what she discovers. Something. Ah, oh, the meaning yeah, of life. Rip- Is it a suitcase that, when she opens it, it glows gold? <laughs> yes, that's why I'm. Uh, that, that's why I'm unclear in it as well. All <laughs> um, oh, right. Yes. Yes. So it's about a. It's about a family secret that she discovers, and then she meets her auntie, um, who's a lawyer, I think, uh, and then it just becomes about their relationship, and it's about questions of faith. Uh, and and family and love and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that won the Academy Award a couple of years back. To film. be honest, so while I was checking through uh, the likes of all four, I'm pretty sure I saw Ida on there. Um, so if it's not ah. all four, I player, but I definitely saw that. So um, yeah, if you want to have a, a double bill, um, that's available. Definitely on, worth uh, checking out both of them. Yeah. As well as obviously those uh, areas as well, I've uh, picked up upon this week to do my section for uh, our new feature, the box set binge. Um, Scott, the other uh, week, did uh, The Wire. Um, So I'm going to be looking this week at Six Feet Under, um, another epic um, American sort of drama series, which I don't think it quite got the widespread attention uh, that it deserved from the early uh, 2000s. Uh, the likes of Sopranos, which really took off, and nowadays you've got the likes of The Wire, Breaking Bad, which capture the public attention. But I do feel as if Six Feet Under has just bubbled under the surface, and I know a lot of people out there just 
didn't see it but I know those people who did see it absolutely adored it um, so I just wanted to highlight this and bring it to more people's attention um, but the series itself it's an American drama series which ran for five series between 2001 and 2005 it follows the Fisher family and their family-owned funeral home now the series is set predominantly in and around the, f the funeral home but its themes are wider about the uh, life coping with death and that death is all a part of life and we must accept to must uh, accept to, uh, to how to cope with loss um, the introduction of the show starts with uh, our way in is through the eyes of uh, Nate who's uh, one of the uh, brothers um, of the family um, where he has to return home after his father's sudden death and his father was the owner and the main runner of the director of the funeral home uh, now to say that there's friction between the family would be a bit of an understatement when he returns um, Nate is like the kind of prodigal son but he left the family to get away from the funeral home he didn't want a part of it all he saw was death um, so he left to start a new life for himself, whereas his brother David, he stayed behind and uh, became uh, a worker um, along with his father in the funeral home. So each of the family members have their own wider issues going on within the family and outside of the family itself. And these stories are explored as the series progresses through series one to series five. So along with uh, Nate, I've already mentioned David, his brother, um, there's also a younger sister, Claire, um, who's like a typical struggling type teen uh, character, uh, but brilliantly played. Um, and then also there's uh, the overlooked, um, I wouldn't say henpecked mother, but the, she's just a very bizarre mother figure called Ruth, who she's just very silent and mute in the background, but she has her moments of where she sort of steps out to say her piece, um, which is a big shock to the rest of the family members because she's the seem deemed to be just the one who gets on with things in the background. Um, but in the father's will, um, he leaves the funeral home to both Nate and to David. So Nate, begrudgingly, out of some feel feeling of obligation, he decides he's going to stay to support the family and also in some ways help deal with his grief by staying there to help support and run the family business. Now, the show itself um, is... Uh, created by Alan Ball, who famously uh, wrote the screenplay for 1999's um, American Beauty. Um, he also went on to then create the vampire series True Blood, which I think I only ever watched like the odd episode just to see what it was about, but I didn't really get my teeth stung into it. Wah, wah, wah. Hey, um, King, King what? Sorry for... <laughs> Less of the puns, I know. Um, but uh, the other standout thing as well from um, Six Feet Under is obviously the... Um, creative team into it there's also iconic music the theme and the scores by uh, thomas newman who's uh, famously known for shawshank redemption american beauty itself uh, finding nemo and uh, lately some of the um, uh, bond films like skyfall and spectre um he's got a, and 1917 and as well 1917 of course really great work he's just got a very sort of um distinctive um style of um composing and his music um from you can definitely tell that it hawks from what he sort of established with uh, Alan Ball in American Beauty, as uh, then played a part in going into Six Feet Under. Um, but each episode of the series itself, it starts with a death, which is quite macabre and a little grim, mm. but it really sort of highlights the tone of the series, where it's very darkly comic, because some of these death scenes 
or really sort of grueling or really sort of heart-wrenching and sad and some of them are just setups of just slapstick humor um with someone dying and i mean each each one starts and you think right how is this episode going to start is it going to be traumatic is it going to be something a bit well not that any death is funny but it's so well set um so each of the people who you see dying at the very start of the show just some random stranger they end up passing through the doors as it were of the funeral home whether if the service is being done through them or dealt with through um the fisher family um but the series evolves as it goes on and it introduces more and more characters and a couple of the um, main characters outside of the family itself is the uh, funeral home worker federico um who's a friend of the family um there's also nate's on off girlfriend brenda uh, also her psychotic brother billy and uh, David's partner, who's a cop uh, called Keith. And in addition to these um, wider characters, there's also more and more characters who do get added on, but those are the main ones. But each of these added characters just give added depth to the core family unit, and it makes you feel and learn a lot more about each family member. And across the five seasons, the quality, I wouldn't say, is consistent across it all. I will hold my hands up and say that there are a few storylines and a few decisions um, which I don't really feel quite pay off as well as they should. Um, but the writing and the portrayal of the characters by the actors is so good. You feel so invested that you want to see it through. And I do think it is worth sticking through because there are a few storylines for a particular few characters um i won't spoil them here if people do choose to go in but you'll you know what i mean when you watch it um you think where they're going with this but you see it out because what's going on with other characters is well worth the payoff of their storylines um, but as i say it's the fact that the portrayal and the writing of these characters is so well done that you don't mind these little sort of tangents that it goes off on but the fact that it all comes back together and I know Scott was mentioning with The Wire and its grand finale and in his uh, box set binge special, um, the final episode of Six Feet Under is just, in my words, perfect. Um, mm. You can catch the ending on YouTube if you want to spoil it for yourself. Um, but really... Why would we do that? Why would you sit through all five seasons <laughs> to then get the reward of the finale? I think it's probably one of the most perfect finales to any TV series I've seen about the themes of what the whole show is about, about death, making the most of life and coping with death, the finale sort of just sums it up perfectly. It is a little bit grandstanding. I do think that it, if you were a cynic, you would kind of like roll your eyes at it. But I think the tone of it, if you've watched it through the entire series, the finale is just absolutely perfect. Um, but there's also a one other particular landmark episode, which... All fans of the series also name um, and just say this is just one of the best hours of television they've ever seen. It's an episode from series four called That's My Dog. It's an episode where David is abducted by a carjacker and it's probably the most shocking, brutal episode I've ever seen. I mean, the only other thing I can sort of level it with is uh, there was an episode of er where dr green gets assaulted in a toilet cubicle and it just comes out with a balloon just like oh my god this is brutal um it's just an hour of uh, david essentially being sort of well i'm not saying tortured it's not like um 
torture porn or anything so, like that so yeah. no uh, but it's just this grueling experience that he goes through and of just him either using the will to fight or flight and the impact that this episode has him for the remainder of that character for the rest of the series is just mm. uh, it, it's well worth watching so do start at the beginning work your way through it you'll be rewarded it's a brilliant show so is that episode just sort of like a little tangential one? Um, the episode itself, it does still feature other characters. It doesn't just focus on David. Oh, um, right, okay. Yeah, but yeah. the main sto- story thread running through it, it links with him. It's, it's his. It's his. Okay. And uh, then from the rest of the series on, it does hark back to his experience. Okay. But um, in terms of it, it's, it's darkly comic, the whole series. Um, so don't think it's all doom and gloom with it about it being a mortician's in a funeral home. Um, <laughs> it's got some sort of really sort of wonderful touching moments to it. And I think that the message of the series is make the most of life by accepting death as a part of it. Um, it's a really strong message. Um, but the the show itself, it's available uh, through Sky uh, Box Office, uh, not Box Office. I think it's called Sky On Demand. Um, you can get it through Now TV. It's on Sky Box Sets and all that, yeah. Box Sets, that's the one. Yep, Now TV. It's available to buy through Amazon Prime, iTunes, and of course available on DVD. Um, unfortunately, there hasn't been like an upgraded version of Blu-ray for it. Unfortunately, because I think that would help bring it uh, a bit more wider appeal but it's available through all your major um sort of premium streaming uh but i've got the dvd box sets which are a treasure of my uh, tv collection uh but once again i can't recommend the series enough so if you haven't seen it before please do try to check it out but i mean have either of you guys before me mentioning it have you guys heard of it or seen any of it before i've started watching it just in the last uh, couple of weeks so i've seen four episodes i think and um one thing that you notice is that uh, they treat the uh, gay relationship between David and Keith um, in a very sort of, in a way that's like, yeah, they're in a relationship. It's a relationship, you know, who, they're, they're not like uh, caricatures. Um, no, definitely not. Like, yeah. like genuine characters in terms of a person you'd see in everyday life. Uh, they're not sort yeah. of um, a, a barely thought out character. Um, like in 2001, uh, that, in America, especially, that would have been quite a big thing to have gay characters being being portrayed correctly. Um, the fact that they're also in a mixed race relationship as well, with Keith being black yeah, and David being yeah. white. Yeah, it is. That, that is a revolutionary aspect of it, I think, and, uh, and uh, that's the sort of progressiveness you get from it. You get get you get it um, confronting contemporary issues in a very um, honest and accurate way as the same only four episodes in but you, you can really it's hbo yeah it's, it's hbo as yeah. is the wire as is Kirby yeah. enthusiasm sopranos. as is the sopranos which will be no doubt the topic of conversation for yourself scott in an upcoming episode yeah <laughs> again never seen a single one so uh shocking well scott let me know let me know when you get to the final episode of six feet under and i'll uh I think yeah. I might try to take out the DVD and watch again myself because it's uh, it is <laughs> it is that good.
Fantastic. Well, that's been uh, episode 10. So um, it's a bit of a landmark for us, double figures. Um, So just want to say a big thank you to those out there who've been listening and also for you uh, commenting and getting in touch with us via our social media outlets. Um, So please continue to do so. um, And uh, thank you very much. And we look forward to seeing you guys uh, for the next episode. Um, So from me, Grim, thank you and goodbye. And from me, Simon, thank you and goodbye. And for me, Scott, thanks, everyone, and see you next time. (laughs) Oh, you had to break it. (laughs) (laughs) See you in a bit, guys. Bye.